course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live, or at least the closest thing to it. <laughs> From the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our famed yet secretive bunker. Somewhere in the Los Angeles area, I have the coordinates, but I'm not going to share them for any price. On second thought, a reasonable offer. Oh, you take anything. I got right. Somebody, somebody comes with five and a deuce, you, it, you've sold it out. Hey, I used to drive a deuce and a quarter. Yes, you did. Yeah. Yes, you did. So, how you feeling, bro? I'm feeling like a man who has a new lease on life, but the lease has been recalled, canceled. I've lost my lease. Are we going to talk about that? Or just yeah, we'll just go? do it real briefly. I died a week ago, but I'm here to say it's not like working on AM radio. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's funny. Yeah. I absolutely, that, now that was so, so you say you died. You did not die. Well, as uh, far as I know, I did. No, you didn't. I was at, well, I thought I had a heartburn, and uh, the beloved Barb, who was on her way to organize all these spineless Dems to rise up and... <laughs> Uh, she's not spineless, but boy, she's having a hard time whipping these altruistic people into shape. Ugh. So anyway, uh, she's not going to drop you off at urgent care, and then you text me and tell me if they decide whether it's heartburn or heart attack. So when I texted her back, the answer was, I'm in an ambulance, get it? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no, I don't get it. And now she's on my way, <laughs> on my way. Apparently, I was exceptionally, I can't say that. I was very fortunate. I was terminally unique. <laughs> so you're almost dead, is what you're saying. Yeah, uh, they said I made it uh, another couple minutes and it would have been uh, too far. So I would, another couple minutes, I would have been doing the show myself this way. Yeah, but you don't like doing that. It'd be you and Frank, and you'd go out scouring, looking for some other well-known has-been. You know, the thing is, bro, no matter how much air is cut off to the brain or, or any sort of uh, It doesn't flow, affect the ratings. It won't affect, it won't affect anything that you do on this show. That's right. <laughs> did, did, you, did you read the message I sent you about Tucson, Arizona? Well, yeah, now, now your uncle crazy with a medical. Yeah. Pass. I'll probably. What about? Uh, what I'll about probably read that note on uh, Outlaw Radio today. That oh, okay. will be proof oh, so of my book. damage. <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy once. I was in, when I was in. We'll get to our guest in a second. The heck with Yeah, that. hold on, Rebecca. But when I was in radio, I was in Ottawa. Okay, mm -hmm. we had a, a kid who was a sales guy, who ended up getting a job, <gasps> having never done this before, as the sports director of Channel 12 in Montreal. Mm. Okay, leaving sales. Radio, whether he had been in for five minutes, and he becomes the sports guy at Channel 12. So we were watching his first sportscast, and he goes, "Well, today in the Tuxen Open, the Tuxen, yeah." Um, and that was his last. Day. That was the last day. Yeah, Tuxen. That's like when they had me do classical music mm. at KUOW. I oh, must have been good. No. <laughs> Montavani and the hits. No, no, it wasn't, Mont it wasn't Montavani. It was all those people with strange foreign names. Yeah, you wanted to be dead. Yeah. Yeah, damn yeah. right. <laughs> so what do we got today, bro? We have... First uh, of all, who am I? Talented. You're Howard Lapidus, manager of the star. And who else is here? Uh, we got Frank J. Hagen. We got Mark C.G. Boyer, right. our fact checker. We have producer Matt Allen. He's here. Yeah. 
In fact, this is, in fact, a Matt Allen production. It is, and he hasn't lived it down yet. Don't. He won't. <laughs> don't do that. He's got 87% of the show. Don't do that to yeah. me. Okay. Uh, and our guest would be? Uh, the beautiful and talented uh, Rebecca Morris. Rebecca, are you there? Pearl, I'm just so happy that you're back so soon. And are you going to write a book now about your your ten minutes on the? Oh no, there's too many of those. Gee, I died, and thank God I'm alive. Books. And I would do one that's just the opposite, but there's not really a wide demographic appeal to books by dead people celebrating it. Rebecca, apparently you didn't read his last book. <laughs> Never say last. <laughs> say most recent. <laughs> okay. Oh, Rebecca and I were on TV together separately. Yes, yes. On, only on True Crime TV can you be together and separately. Yeah, we uh, we did the guy with the fake Abe, Amish, Amish, Amish beard murdering his uh, wife. Remember that? Well... That was, yeah, that was, a, it was a real beard, but, um... I mean, in yeah. real life, it was a real beard, but on Deadly Sins, I don't think that oh, was a real beard. Oh, that was, yes. Yeah, their, their uh, costumes, makeup, and acting, well... There is a shaved collie huddled somewhere. A shaved <laughs> collie? <laughs> well done. Shaved yeah. collie. Well, the audience, uh, I mean, ID channel, as you know, has a very loyal... Yeah. Uh, so they will put up with just about anything as long as they hear my voice and see your face. So. That's it. Well, didn't they see your face and hear my voice? Oh, yeah, they did. If they would have saw my face more, they would have seen how upset I was. That was not my... Is I know you were very closely linked to the story of the murdering Amish Amish. Well, I, yeah, Greg Olson and I wrote the only book about that. Oh, that's what made you the living expert. That, that's what made me the expert. Well, they brought me in to do color commentary. And usually what that means is they tell me who did what to who, and then they just start running tape, and I try to give them lines they can cue off of, you know, they can use for punctuation, like a setup, you know. Stop down and they say, Burl, would, would you just say something like, uh, and then she broke into the safe? Or, yeah. and, and she was a slut. Or and, or they, they, and they use those little clips on different shows. <laughs> Is it mix and match, they, they modular. Fit. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, those I things didn't know fit, that. They fit everywhere. It they doesn't matter, Rebecca. Yeah. A bank of us saying short sentences. Uh, they they might put together a reel of all the stuff of mine they didn't use. <laughs> Like the one for the battling hookers, when she was on her knees, it wasn't to repent. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, Burl. You know, you with your hooker material. Yeah. Well, anyway, so they had me do this, but we didn't do it together, the Amish to, murderer. We're going to get to today's show at some point. Yeah, right? well, this is today's show because it's Rebecca, and she's got lots of books you can buy. Yeah, but you're the one doing the talking, bro. Well, she won't, she'll be talking in just a moment. That's good. Did you have a, a difficult time with that episode <laughs> as I did? Well, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I like to I like to do those So do shows, I. But, it um, was great fun. They are, you know, they are what they are. I think the quality is getting better as there are more, you know, so-called true crime uh, shows on Netflix or Oxygen or Hulu or ID there. Uh, you know, I think I think the quality is getting better and will get better, but uh, they turn out a lot of, gosh, I don't know how many different shows there are on ID, maybe 20 or 30? I like your titles. I don't titles. episodes, I mean, you know, like... Oh, different, sh kids. you're talking about different shows. Yeah. Have you ever done Killer Kids or... Yeah, uh, I don't like as, as uh, Elder Skelter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that title. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Rebecca, what made you decide to go to your hometown and say, well, there's a good murder here? Well, you know, um, three years ago, I, I don't even, it's one of the mysterious things about writing. I couldn't tell you why this occurred to me after all these years. I, I'd always remembered the, my classmate who was murdered and that it wasn't solved. Three years ago, I put something on our class Facebook page, and I heard from, you know, dozens dozens of people who said they'd never forgotten it and they'd also never forgotten that it wasn't solved and that it was a widespread theory that if the if Dick Kitchell's father had been prominent in the town that this would have been solved. So I went to my hometown, of course I've been there over the years and and uh, met with a group of, of these classmates and just to talk about the case and their memories of their senior year in high school and um, the, the reason that I could do a book, thank goodness, is the two original detectives and the VA are still living, and they're in their mid or late 80s, but very sharp and uh, very candid with me, and I talked to them many times. And, you know, without that, uh, you know, his, his parents are deceased. His, you know, there just weren't a lot of people left. Except I mean, the, the, your hometown, I mean, where you went back to do this is in, in lovely historic Oregon. Yes, it is. It's Corvallis, Oregon, which is the home of Oregon State University. And a and population of what? Uh, Corvallis isn't well, huge. Well, about, about 30,000 when I was... Yeah, it's kind of like Walla Walla. Uh, maybe, na yeah, now it's now it's fifty to 60,000. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was about 30,000, and... So maybe, you know, after Portland, it was maybe number three or four in the state, but a very, you know, liberal, uh, idyllic. Uh, I, I mean, I, I know now that I, I grew up in a bubble. I, I don't think I really knew it then. But my father was, was a university person, and the, there was quite a social uh, strata in town. You oh, were I either bet. You were either, you know, your, your parents were at the university or in business or... Um, A millionaire uh, rancher. Architects, lawyers, etc. You know, or they were, of course, farmers and uh, ran, you know, a lot of the little businesses. And my, my parents had... Uh, huge wide circle of friends that were everything they were farmers they ran the, the florist company um you know one was an engineer uh, they were just you know it was it was pretty uh, a pretty wide group is it but is it is it true that the uh, city hall in corvallis is at the mcdonald's no. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a vicious rumor. Oh, come on. With cheese. Everyone knows it's Wendy's. <laughs> no, we Everyone have the knows uh, old Wendy's. historic courthouse and the old historic city hall, and uh, we still have a, an old downtown area, but like a lot of other, you know, cities, it's, it is spread, and some of the big box stores have come in, but it's, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, like you, Burl, it's a unique town. <laughs> yeah, very uh, unique. <laughs> this is my favorite things, bizarre phrases. Yeah, one of the things that I learned that first time that I went back to Corvallis to meet with classmates to, to pick their brains and then find out their memories of all this is that, that my, my Corvallis was not necessarily their Corvallis. Uh-huh. And I was naive about that. I I didn't know how unhappy some kids were there. So it, it became, the book became about 
uh, investigating the murder investigation. It had never been closed. Everybody always thought the boy's father, you know, they'd had one too many fist fights and he'd, he'd killed him. But, um, yeah, yeah tell, 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 give, give us the case. Tell us what happened. Okay, okay. well, 17-year-old Dick Kitchell had been a really sweet you know, boy is a Cub Scout and, and grew up to be what we used to call a JD, a juvenile delinquent. And in October of 1967, uh, he used to drink a lot and go to a home of a couple that were in their 20s that supplied, you know, beer and alcohol to teenagers. And he was in a scuffle or some kind of fight at the house that night. And he didn't have his own car because he'd crashed it a couple weeks earlier. So an older man, I mean in his early 20s, offered to give three of the teenage boys rides home and took two of them home. And then he said that Dick wouldn't tell him where he lived and he let him out on a downtown Corvallis street and never saw him again. Well, um, his parents, waited six days to report him missing. Oh, good. Just they were irked at him, apparently. Yeah, he just took off sometimes. And then, um, so 10 days after he was supposedly dropped off on the downtown street, uh, there was a boy standing on his father's, uh, the dock of the marina, and here came a body flowing, floating by. And so it was 10 days in the Lambert River, which, you know, runs Whoa, the whole yeah. swath of Oregon, and at that time was one of the most polluted rivers in, in America. And uh, so, you know, in 1967, you didn't have an electronic footprint, you know, that was long before social media and cell phones, and there was, you know, no DNA, and uh, they focused pretty quickly, the police, on this... 22-year-old who'd given him a ride because, of course, he was the last to, to see him, as far as they knew. And uh, the boy had been in another fight after he'd left the party. He'd been uh, pretty well beaten and strangled and then put in the river. So they focused on uh, this 22-year-old, and he flunked, you know, three polygraphs, but they were never able to make an arrest because... You know, it was completely circumstantial, and uh, but they had to go through, you know, there were a number of suspects, including the boy's father. And um, I want to interject here, just like you were talking about how this kid gets into lots of fights. He was only about like four nine or something. I mean, five, oh, he was so, he was tiny. He was five foot two, 125 pounds. He was, you know, he'd always been small as a child, but he was small as a teenager, and he was going to... You That's know, probably why he got in fights. So he, yeah, he probably, you know, made up for his size by, you know, being, uh, being in fights and and uh, being so frustrated. But you know, he had a a pretty rough childhood. Um, his, uh, see, he had at the time he died, his parents had been divorced, and he'd had, and he was on stepmother number two. Mm. And, uh, so lots of emotional issues being played oh, wow. out here in wow. his adolescence. How, yeah. how, old, was, how old was he when he died? How old was he? He was 17. Okay. And that was our, our senior year. Um, I think the, the, the saddest thing is that, um, according to the detectives, both in their interviews with me and in their notes, his, you know, his father never once 
called the police to nag them or ask how the investigation was going and really resented the police, you know, insisting on his having a polygraph. And, and, and so the father was very angry. And I don't know if it was whether over the death of his only child or if it was, he was just an angry guy. Um, so the investigation, you know, only lasted a, a few months, but then um, it, 40 years later, it was looked at as a cold case again. And uh, so that detective who looked at it was very forthcoming with me, and he, uh, he thinks that they made a mistake in 1967-68, that they could have made the arrest. And he, in 2011, was going to take it to a grand jury, and then he found out that this guy who'd been the suspect for 45 years had just died. So they dropped it, a, dropped it right then and there. Why why bother? So exactly. that's 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 the 20 that was the 22 year old that we're talking about. Yes, yeah, okay. and his name was Doug Hamblin, mm -hmm. and uh, he, you know, his couple of his ex wives were very. Uh, open with me, and and there's really nobody who doesn't think he did it. He never, as far as we know, he never confessed it. Although, um, you know, one of his deceased, now deceased wives, had said that that he confessed it to her. But it's it's really about how um, I mean, I think a lot of the story is what 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 you could the case you couldn't make 50 years ago without DNA and actually and and in addition to no DNA there was no there's no crime scene yeah you don't know where it took place Mark Boyer has a question for you Hold on a second. possibly down by the river possibly you know and they they looked at the fellow's car you know 10 days after mm. the event they never seized the car but you know they just kind of walked around it looked inside didn't see anything uh, so I think uh, they did, you know, I asked the detectives what, what the classmates had said to me, you know, was it not solved because his dad, his dad ran a shoe repair shop, and they lived at the end of town that was, you know, very kind of working class, and the detectives, you know, to this day say they, they gave it their all, and they really wanted the DA to uh, bring charges, but... Uh, the DA continues to say he just he just couldn't. Yeah, if you can't do it, you can't do it. Mark has a question yeah. for you. Mark, go ahead. Uh, I have two questions. One, um, Dick had two prized possessions in his life. Yes. The car and? And his jacket, which was a, uh, a suede and, and fake fur-lined jacket. And he went everywhere with that jacket, and he unfortunately just, you know, busted up his car on uh, Labor Day weekend, 1967. But that jacket um, uh, was missing after his body was found, and everybody was wondering, well, you know, Dick never never wore, went without that, and where was it? Well, the fellow who, Doug Hamblin, who drove him in his car, admitted that the jacket had been left in his car and he didn't he claimed he didn't know it belonged to and he gave it to a child in his neighborhood but he did tell the police that he'd given it away and he got it back for them hmm. and so i guess he could have just i guess it would have been worse for him if he'd lied and said he hadn't seen it because the second going to find it the second but, question um, i have for yeah. you um is we're making the assumption that there was a fight 
the dick had a fight and lost this fight. Did the yes. suspect have any uh, injuries on him consistent? Well, it was fight? 10 days before they knew that, of course, that Dick had been murdered. And when they found his body, they looked at the hands and the face of the 22-year-old. And the thing is, he worked at a metalworking business. And they, you know, they couldn't see anything. But um, one of the interesting uh, questions that remains a mystery is that Dick had, um, he'd been hit pretty hard in the face and both eyes and then strangled. But they actually have continued to, to hold out the idea that in a way it was an accident that um, the, the front passenger door of the car he was driven in was broken. And so you had to slide out on the, the bench seat of the front seat, slide past the, the driver's seat and the, and the steering wheel. And, um, and Doug Hamblin admitted he had to put his arm around Dick's neck and haul him out of the car. Uh-huh. And then, and then it escalated. I mean, just doing that strengthened him. I have an odd question. Did anybody ever take a look at this to see if there was any... Well, I guess it's way too late for that, but did you, in the process of your research, uncover that maybe this was just a sex act that went a little bit too far, or an attempted one that caused the problems? Well, um, I, I pondered it, and I, uh, one of the original... You know, just as many theories I looked at was was Dick hitchhiking after he was let off on the street and maybe picked up, you know, by a man, and then you know things went wrong. But um, there was no indication that anybody had ever seen him downtown that night that he was walking at all along the street. And, uh, so probably if this had happened last year instead of in 1967, there would be DNA, there would be this. The rape kit. Yeah, yeah every, everything in the universe. And if uh, the 22-year-old actually did it, it wouldn't be a matter of theory. It would be a matter of hard evidence, yeah. which is the only way you can hopefully convict somebody. Yeah. And I assume, I mean, I've read the, the autopsy report, and there's nothing about, you know, Dick being molested uh in, a, in any way. Of course, in those days, it would have the body's already been in the, the river for yeah. uh, God knows how long. Yeah. And even if it had been on dry land, the standard police procedure in those days was, well, before you do anything, you wash that body down real good. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, I know. That was... You, what you don't know, you don't know. Plus, the amount... If You, you said the river was polluted. So if you're going to try to dump a body, that was a great place to do it into because anything that was left on that body would have been uh, eradicated. Yes. And so it looks like he, you know, took off his coat, you know, before the fight or as he was pulled out of the car, you know, it came off or he took it off. Maybe he took it off and put it back in the car as soon as he knew that Doug was you know, that they were going to have a fist fight down. And I, the thing is that the street corner where Doug Hamlin says he let Dick off was really, is just two blocks from the river. So maybe he never went to that street corner. You know, if they were 
uh, arguing. What the deal with the jacket is, undoubtedly, is I'm sure I'm not the first person to point out. If you've ever seen two guys fight, one of them is uh, getting into it, one of them has got a jacket, you know that the arm's going to be grabbed, one of the arms is going to come loose, you're going to have a jacket half on, half off, you take yeah. that sleeve, you wrap it around the guy's throat, yeah. And uh, the guy's only 5'2 to begin with, and if this other guy's taller and knows how to use a little leverage with that jacket, there you go. Yeah. Well, I don't know why he didn't throw the jacket in the river. Maybe... It floats. <laughs> didn't think of it, or... Uh, yeah. yeah, it would float. Because I'm sure if you, if you took a, a, the sleeve of that jacket, matched it with the, the uh, whatever you call it, the marks on the, his throat... On the throat. That's where they come but from. After from 10 the, days, I doubt yeah. seriously if there were anything yeah. that you could match that up with. But that's my well, my take yeah, on it. There were marks. There were, you know, they could tell he was strangled. But it wasn't. It wasn't uh, with. You're right. It wasn't with two hands that we see. You know, in an old noir movie where they grip the throat with two hands. It it was with an elbow or a piece of cloth. Let's try a piece of cloth. <clears throat> it could have even been an accidental. It could have been manslaughter. Yeah. You could have been trying to restrain the kid, you know, uh, choking him with uh, the sleeve. Because he was such a feisty little kid. I, I think that's probably what happened is that it was, uh, you know. Death by misadventure. It would have been manslaughter. Yeah. And uh, so they, um, you know, they worked on Doug Hamlin and... and uh, you know, the first two polygraphs were inconclusive. The third one, you know, was the first time the examiner said, you know, he, he did it. But, of course, there's nothing they can do. If that's, you can't charge somebody based on a polygraph. No, no, they're too easy to beat. And they're not admissible. Yeah, it has two good reasons why you can't yeah. use them. They're not admissible in court, and they're easy to beat. It's interesting yeah. that the uh, the man who trained more polygraph uh, operators in the United States than anyone else, so starting, I think, in 1973 or something like that, 63, is uh, Fred Wolfson, yeah. who we have uh, had on the show several times. And he gave up the whole polygraph thing because it's, it's just too easy to do it to have a mess with. With all the people he trained, bottom line was, they might as well be useless. Well, I, I, I have to admit, I didn't know that. I didn't know they were easy to beat. I know it can be done. A pathological liar can beat one. And also someone with a tennis ball in their underarm. Because in their brain, they're, they're not going to be nervous or, or, or they don't touch, in the, touch on that empathy. Or, right. Is that why? Yeah. Yeah, that's why with a psychopath, you could also put a tennis ball in your underarm. You could put a tack in your shoe. Can we, uh, can we back up on this tennis ball underarm thing? <laughs> Hang on, Rebecca, one second. I know you enjoy that, right, Howard. Been, it doesn't I, mean that you no, have to I've get involved listening with polygraphs. To, I've been sitting back, and I've been listening to Rebecca, and then well, you I, pipe I in. I remember this, if I'm ever given a polygraph, a tack. That's right. Ball. Other thing okay. is taking up blood pressure medication. A tennis ball. Hey, wait, wait, back up, though. A tennis well, ball. Any sensory uh, interruption of your of sensory. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you were going to back up. Yeah, Howard's backing I, I'm up. I'm trying to understand the tennis ball. He you wants know, to date who Vanessa the guy, Williams. Who was the guy that thought that up? What was he doing? <laughs> the guy who thought that up, what was he doing? Yeah. Stealing millions of dollars in diamonds. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> now I know who it is. That's right. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you punched oh. that story out. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Full details of my forthcoming book. <laughs> uh, just one other question. If the father was so 
as you say, didn't care because he was, you know, the, uh, the kid was a bit of a troublemaker at this point in his life. Yeah. And let 10 days go past. By any chance, did anybody explore how many injuries this kid had suffered before? I mean, a broken arm, broken rib, broken leg, broken well, there toe? Wasn't, there wasn't a medical record of it, but the first cop down at the river called to the river when the body was found he had gone he'd been called to the house a few times over the years when father and son were having a big fight and he would just go in and try to calm them down but he told me you know in those days there wasn't there was no place to take the child if you took them out of the home there's no temporary foster care or there wasn't a social worker you know you basically tried to uh, calm the, the flames of the fight and, and they need you to leave the child there. What is it those two guys fought about all the time? Oh. Who was taller? Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know. Probably his father by just a little bit. He was a small guy, too. But, um, you know, I think it was um, anger on both their parts, on uh, uh, dicks that, you know, his life was <laughs> turning out the way it, it was. And uh, I think, you know, his, his, a lot of his friends who I spoke with, you know, think that he'd graduated, he, you know, he's, he was fine in school with his grades and everything, but if he'd gotten, you know, graduated and gotten out of there, he probably would have been okay. Uh, and, you know, both, both of them drank a lot, father and son. And so I think it was just a, you know, a volatile situation. All, all the way around. And, you know, and Dick would act out and Dick would uh, disappear and Dick had the car accident. And uh, so, but, you know, he was really... Um, but he was he still likable. <laughs> he was so likable. And he'd been a really likable child and he was likable as a teenager. He had friends in every social strata and was dating a cheerleader. And, oh, well, and, that makes all the know, difference in the world right it there. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. If you're dating a cheerleader, you're hitting some home runs somewhere. He wasn't just a delinquent, you know. He was... He, he, well, in a small town, you have to parcel out the roles, you know. It's like a little theater. You know, you're going to be the recalcitrant, uh, troublemaking teen. Oh, yeah. However, if you do that all the time, then we're missing the baby-faced likable. <laughs> you know? If it had only happened a few years later, he would have been Fonzie. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, exactly. The cool one. Yeah. With the, except the black leather jacket. And, yeah. And I do think that, um, you know, this... This is a book. It, it was could be about G. any town, and it probably is. I mean, this could happen and did happen anywhere. But um, so the backdrop of the murder mystery, I also write about, you know, everything. 1968 was a huge year in America, and it came, you know, that's when the outside world came to Corvallis because we were, you know, pretty liberal student body and an unusually bright because, you know, there's so many kids whose parents were at the university. We had a higher, you know, percentage of high school teachers who had, you know, graduate and postgraduate degrees than anywhere in America. So, you know, everybody was, you know, pretty smart and they went... went Well-educated, wide demographics. Uh, yeah, it's very white. similar to Walla Walla, getting with that, a small yeah. college town with a uh, some wealthy uh, ranchers and farmers, blue-collar yeah. workers, and a great yeah. many highly educated, intelligent people. 
Yes. I'm yeah. one and, of them, of um, So, and then um, literally both, you know, the presidential primaries, the, the primaries in the West used to be more important than they are now, and Oregon had a presidential primary in May of 1968, and Nixon came to Corvallis, <coughs> Bobby Kennedy came to Corvallis, you know, a lot of students went to hear them. They, they actually interrupted our graduation night to say that Bobby Kennedy had been killed in, in Los Angeles. And so the backdrop is kind of 1968. I follow several students through the year um, that were either close to Dick or, or were not close to Dick. But, you know, one boy in particular who, you know, knew he was gay, couldn't say anything, joined the Army and went to Vietnam thinking it would make him straight. No. And, you know, was a heroic helicopter and, pilot. And, and that didn't work? No. Oh, okay. No, oh, God. See, I had work. my hopes pinned on that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We, if we just so, had enough um, wars, we could make them all straight. Uh, well, you got to remember, this is a year before gay liberation. Yeah. yeah. That didn't oh, happen until June of 1969. Yeah. Uh, the whole world so is the watching. Other, the it's other 1968. The other book that, that I really enjoyed finding out about is I didn't know that those pioneers who came settled in the Willamette Valley in Oregon that I'd grown up, you know, hearing about, well, that they brought their, you know, racist past with them from the South. Oh, yeah. Do you, did you know that it was illegal in Oregon to be black until about uh, 55 years ago? Yes, I, I did. Well, that's amazing. Most people don't know that. And at the time of statehood, uh, it was actually in the Oregon Constitution that um, I, they um, outlawed slavery, but blacks couldn't live in Oregon. Yeah, yeah. So um, there was just a, a lot of That's the same in uh, Bisbee, Arizona. You can't be a Chinese even if you own the Chinese restaurant. Oh, my God. <laughs> Still on the well, books. The KKK really loved these small Oregon towns. They thrived in the 20s and 30s. and in these small towns and so um i i mean i have to admit i was really shocked about that i didn't i didn't know that that good was part of Corvallis's uh, history yeah oregon's uh has a very unique unique history uh, yeah. yeah it's still watch, it's fun watching a football game out of there i'll tell you that oh yeah <laughs> yeah so um it's, uh, I describe the book as part true crime, part memoir, and it's different than anything I've ever done, but I wanted, you know, I just wanted to do it. I wanted to find out, uh, you know, how, how much was truth and, and what was memory. Yeah, because as you mentioned very early in the interview, you said the Corvallis that you grew up in yeah. wasn't the one that existed for other people. Uh, you yeah. were seeing it through a very, very personalized lens. How did you, how did you get out of there? Oh, well, I wasn't particularly in, I mean, I didn't think of myself as in a hurry, but um, so one thing I've never really shared with people, but I, I was asking people in the book to tell me their story, so I tell mine, is that I was married at 19 and uh, to somebody who left for Vietnam a couple weeks later. And uh, I don't know what, I still don't understand why my parents let me do it, or I suppose because I was stubborn and they couldn't talk me out of it. And then when he came back from Vietnam, by then I'd gone back to college and, you know, was doing really well. And um, we had just, you know, we were just so young. We just had lost touch. And I don't mean I didn't 
you know, we were in touch, obviously, every day when he was away, but, but it, we just grown in different directions, so we divorced. Uh, I was working in TV news in Portland, one of the first women on the air uh, on the West Coast, and, um, and you know, finished college, remarried, and, and then, you know, then I was widowed twice by the time I was 33. Oh, oh wow, that must have, that's a whole nother that's traumatic... Whole nother. <laughs> so did the, was, I, was the DA looking at you pretty heavy at this point? <laughs> Oh my gosh! So that's why I I've I've sort of never told anybody about that. You know, you know, I'm supposed to be married three times in this, you know, in this world. So, uh, but a friend of mine always said, well, you know, the first, uh, the second two don't count because they died young. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they count as marriages. Are you honest. known for your cooking? <laughs> <laughs> If I could, can, can I be so bold as Black to ask? Mark can I be so bold as to ask how, how you lost your two husbands? Well, uh, and my first husband was also a reporter, and he um, he was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, which is that very deadly brain tumor that John McCain and Ted Kennedy and many others have, and that was you know 35 years ago, and and in those days you just, I mean, it's still you can't you can't beat it. There. You, you don't outlive, a, a, you don't live through a glioblastoma. And um, then my third husband um, uh, had a rare heart condition called a cardiomyopathy. And he wasn't sick, but they discovered he had this, you know, uh, irregular heartbeat. And there was, you know, in the 1980s, there was nothing they could do about it. He might be a candidate for transplant today, but there just was no treatment. And, um, but I thought he was going to live 20 years, and that sounded pretty good to me. Uh, just as an aside question, Rebecca, and I'm Frank Hagen here. total curveball. Did you work PM Magazine in Portland oh, on the air? No, I, did, I didn't. I was mostly at Channel 6 KYN okay. in the newsroom. Uh, but I worked in news radio also in Portland and in Seattle. And then I was in – so the thing about, you know, life not turning out as I expected is that I could then – you know, frankly, take advantage of opportunities that I probably wouldn't have wouldn't have come my way. So I spent 13 years in New York and radio and TV and um, print, and uh, came back to Seattle um, 15 years ago and started writing True Crime. It's because so, your voice is familiar to me. <laughs> well, I was I was on radio and TV a lot in Portland and Seattle and 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 in New York for um, you know uh, basically what was NPR in New York and Blue, Bluebird Radio. Uh, we used to do business reports that were carried all over the world and. Yeah, I had so. your list of your broadcast credentials here. The only thing you didn't do was play the hits. <laughs> play records. I never spun a record. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, maybe it's not too late. No, it's never never too late. Out there, there's a station with 1490. <laughs> their call letters <laughs> eager to have you play the country western hits from 2 to 3 before I, the Montevani hour. <laughs> I would love to. I would I'd probably do it for free. Radio. You're hoping so, yeah. <laughs> Don't you well, that's say? Radio. Radio's the most fun. It is. That's you why, know. of all the, and I know you probably said this so many times in your personal appearances when they talk about your brilliant career, that the highlight yeah. of your media career is, of course, 
having been with us here on OutlawRadioLife.com. On the Burl Bear Show, yeah. Yeah, yeah, true crime yeah. uncensored. You got Howard's a radio guy, too. Did yeah, and by, and, and by the way, my name is now in the title of the show. Yes, it's now with Howard. I'm with, yes. <laughs> yeah. Burl Bear with. Yes. yes. <laughs> and Mark C.G. Poyer and Frankie. <laughs> and anybody else that happens to wander by our secret bunker. <laughs> Somewhere in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. see, she's got it down to a size. Well, she, and, 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 and why don't you come by here someday? I mean, why not? Well, I, I definitely will when the next time I'm uh, in Los Angeles. Yes, okay. Los make Angeles? sure you're in Los Angeles on a weekend because that's when we do the show live, of course, from our okay. secret Okay, well, that bunker. would be really great fun. And uh, what are you working on now, Burl? Oh, <laughs> he's working on. Oh, she's stage. interviewing Burl. Yeah. I like <laughs> that. The interview. It I starts. Like, I like to ask the questions. <laughs> it starts. It starts with, how do you feel? And are you taking care of yourself? <laughs> now, that's not the book I'm writing. I'm not writing a survivor memoir because I don't know if I'll make it that long. i got to finish the what I'm doing right now. No, uh, we're <laughs> Pearl, yeah. if they tell you to go into the light, it's probably going to be red. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of bunkers, you know, um, the, so I have, I have a bit in, in the, a murder in my hometown about Corvallis, about, um, you know, growing up in the 50s and duck and cover exercises. Oh, God, yes. Seeing, um, you know, uh, John Kennedy advised, he actually told Americans to build a bomb shelter in their yard. I oh, remember. Yeah. My, I remember. My father, my father, yeah. who, who, my father would sell aluminum siding and, and brick front and anything that people he thought could, he could convince to buy anything. Uh, and uh, the next best thing was coming, and he was going to start selling fallout shelters, and boy, could he pitch that. Oh, yeah. yeah. People down the street from me had one. Uh, Ruhia Hanum, who was living in uh, Haifa, Israel, someone asked her if, if she had, uh, like, a whole pantry full of survival stuff and everything. She says, yeah. I live in Israel. If they were to be start dropping bombs, it wouldn't matter how much rice I had. I wouldn't have time to cook it, let alone eat it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in... in in America, and there's a, a good reason that, that Corvallis was actually going to be a, a target because uh, no, no, the, the NORAD uh, headquarters was just outside Corvallis, mm -hmm. Camp Adair, and uh, it was the it controlled the the missile, not the missiles, but the, the planning for the missiles all over. Right, there. and Walla Walla, of course, was uh, also on that same you know ground zero yeah, list. Walla Walla. Yeah, I am. And the I similarities between the two are intense in yeah. terms of if there was going to be a nuclear war, uh, Walla Walla Tri-Cities with a Hanford Atomic Energy Plant, right. boom, you know, you were all history. Just to, for, for the record, I, I'm from Buffalo, Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> New York, New York. Yeah. Well, is there such a place as okay? I, and I, I did pick up on the fact that you mentioned Walla Walla a lot, so you must be from there. He yeah, doesn't stop. Very perceptive. Doesn't stop talking about it. A college town, and then um, similar to Corvallis, yeah. Yeah. Same basic demographics, uh, same military industrial yes. <laughs> complex, uh, butting heads with the uh, educated. <laughs> yes, with. <laughs> And and which uh, what did you uh, which strata were you in? in? We, I was in a unique strata. I was in the strata of those who received uh, swastikas in their mailbox. Oh, 
Yeah, try being a nice Jewish Ballas, boy in Walla Walla, Washington. Corvallis <laughs> had anti-Semitism too. Yeah, of course. And uh, you know, one of the one of they the even have anti-Semitism on a kibbutz. <laughs> yeah, it's universal. One of the kids I follow, his father works on the um, the, the the bomb project, you know, uh-huh. and um, and then was on the faculty at Oregon State and and. Uh, a, uh, when my friend, uh, this is Mark Goheen, was in uh, junior high school, we didn't have middle schools in but junior high school, a teacher locked eyes with him, and I don't know how he worked this into social studies, but the teacher said, you know, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. And, and, uh, and, and it wasn't? <laughs> I'm not sure how that... No. There was a, uh, that, that was a euphemism. So, I'll tell you a, a newspaper story, because you're a newspaper woman, a news reporter. The Walla Walla Union Bulletin, which exists to this day, there was a big ad all about uh, how uh, how Abraham Lincoln wanted to send all the blacks back to Africa, which is true, but I mean, it was all kind of like amplified and taken out of context to make Abraham Lincoln sound like the, you know, the biggest racist on the planet. And it was, I hate to use the word offensive, but even if you weren't a African-American, you'd say... This is rather offensive, the way they're talking about Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) So my mother calls up the newspaper and says, "Uh, I was kind of surprised by that uh, blatantly racist uh, advertisement taking up a half page in the paper. And they went, well, anyone can buy advertising. We'll sell advertising to anyone, you know, if they've got the money and it's a free country. She says, okay, in that case, I'd like to buy an ad. They said, okay. Grand opening next Thursday. Dorsey's Horror House. And they said, what did you say? So, uh, grand opening, uh, Dorsey's Horror House, the best girls, most talent, walla walla, reasonable prices, more bang for your buck. Mrs. Bear, Mrs. Bear, we, we cannot put that, we cannot take out an ad for that. That's offensive. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, but uh, there yeah. It was it. That's, small towns are fascinating that way. Well, they are. The Corvallis Gazette Times ran uh, ads for the KKK rallies that of were course. going to be held, in the, and, the, and K, the KKK would um, sponsor dances at Oregon State at the university. And not much diversity at the university party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, very very um, strange. It's, uh, do you think small towns, um, that there are more secrets? More secretive, is that what you said? More secretive, more secrets than in... Well, in a small town, everybody knows what everyone else is doing, whether they do know or not. So there's always a lot of supposition. And uh, so you might as well just go ahead and do it. (laughs) I grew up in a big town, and there was nothing but secrets. Yeah. And seriously. I mean, if it weren't for having a double life, most people would have no life at all. Correct. You never knew (laughs) what was going on. You may quote me on that. You may quote me. I'm famed for that one. But it's true. That's really great. Yeah, because the the role, the role, social roles that God knows who came up with them and defined them and put people in them are not based on reality. Human beings are far more complex than that. Uh, greater internal diversity. Uh, that's like the. Well, I'm sure you've probably seen the Academy Award-nominated film Half Nelson which was did a great job on playing on people's expectations of social roles. So you, I don't know if you saw the film, but you meet this wonderful family, wonderful black family. The, Nels- the Nelsons. Yeah, yeah, the Nelsons. <laughs> Nelsons. 
<laughs> Mom's in the kitchen cooking up and then, you know, then and the father they're just they're really good people and they're caring people. What was she cooking? Crack. <laughs> but you don't know that until you're already emotionally invested in what good people they are. And the I'm giving away a lot of it, but the movie's several years old. And uh, Ryan Gosling plays this you know fantastic school teacher. His students go on to you know do great things. He doesn't realize how good he is. And he's spoken crack in a men's room, and one of his students finds him. And they have a secret. He uses she delivers. Oh. <laughs> and it's this interesting symbiotic relationship of two really nice people who have two really big secrets. And you think you know who you're... Yeah, and it's not a matter of who's bad, who's good. It doesn't work like that. You know, nobody's all one thing. Yeah, for instance, Rebecca, I, I, Rebecca, I thought I knew Burl Bear. And then he found out. Yeah. No. Horrifying. And then he saw the, the light for a few minutes. Yeah, I saw the light, all right. It was a light in the operating room. Mm. <laughs> they got some cute nurses there, though. Henry Mayo, I can tell you. Do you remember, like, you were operator, and so they, they put you out? Oh, yeah, great morphine. Yeah. I mean, well, even better, the more you had propofol or whatever they No, no, they didn't give you that. Maybe they did. I don't know. Oh, was, how long were you out? I don't know. I was unconscious at I the time. I would say you, you were probably out anywhere from, from four to seven hours. Possibly. Yeah. All I know is that when I went in there, they said, "Oh, we're going to take you right into the emergency room." But you and go so, right from you go right from you you go right from you're in there. You see the light, and then boom, you're. Yeah, I didn't even get a chance to do something I've done the two previous times I've gone in the hospital for emergency surgery. That's a joke with the doctor. Yes, that's to look up at the doctor. Say, doctor, I got one important question to ask you. He goes, "Yes, Mr. Bear." Go. Will I be able to play the violin? <laughs> and he goes, do you play it now? I said, no, but I was hoping. <laughs> they, they, uh, when, when they put me out for my, my surgery, I, I just looked up at them and I said, the money is buried in the... <laughs> oh, and then you drifted off. Right, yeah. That's, that's, well, that's... The, the, my friend the, David uh, Barrow... The combination of the safe is yeah. 33... <laughs> A friend of mine, you know, we got time for this story real quick. I don't know if Howard's heard it or not. My friend David Barrow had uh, uh, well, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was a kid, and they radiated him so much. By the time he got in his 40s, his internal organs were still falling apart. So he goes to the doctor, and then she was very upfront with him. She said, okay, here's your, here's your choice. Uh, you could have a very long, slow, painful death, or there is an operation you could have with a 90% chance you won't live through it. But if you live through it, you'll probably be fine because the operation will be a success. So here's your choice. A long, slow, painful death or a quick, painless death or 10% chance you're going to wake up and ta-da, everything's fine. says, okay, I'll take the quick, painless death, but give me like you know, a little while to prepare everything okay, in case I don't come back. So you know how it is when you pack to go on a trip and in your mind you're already gone. You know? So he's in a perfectly good mood, goes in there, they have the surgery, everything goes fine until... Like the last minute, it all falls apart. He wakes up, and he's like, got bad news. <laughs> You're uh -oh. not. He says, well, how long do I have to live? And the doctor looks at his watch and says, uh, maybe 24 hours, maybe 36, maybe less. Oh. And Dave says, well, there's no reason for me to stay here. He says, let me go home. So they send him home with a nurse, and he's, he's got this bed, and he's got like a morphine drip or something. And all his friends are coming by, and saying, you know, goodbye to him, waving, you know, all that. And then they go off into the kitchen to get a bite to eat, except he's got one friend sitting in the back of the room, and Dave kind of looks up and goes, Kim, Kim, come here quick. Kim gets up and you know, runs right over and leans down, and he goes, Dave's voice is soft. 
Dave reaches up, grabs him by the collar, pulls his head down so his ear is like right next to Dave's mouth. He goes, Kim, it's important. I've got to tell you. <sighs> and so Kim is just like this dead silence. And Dave opens his eyes and says, it's okay. I'm just practicing. <laughs> True story. And what, whatever happened to him? He died right after. Oh, 10 minutes later. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what my friend Alan Goldblatt came in the room and he looked up and goes, Ah, the last straight man from San Francisco. Uh, well, <laughs> Those were his famous last words. And Frank missed that story. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a true story. I said, That's a great sense of humor for someone to pull that stuff. Rebecca, what are you working on next? Oh, well, I. Um can't quite say yet, but it's probably, uh, I'm not probably, it is um, the, I think one of the biggest cases in the country and one of the most famous missing children's cases in the world. And um, it's complicated because it's not solved and, you know, traditional publishers. They want a happy ending. Yeah, they they want an ending. But... um, you know, uh, our friends at Well Blue Press are taking another chance on me, and I think we can do it. And uh, so well, it's uh, something I've wanted to write about. For I you. think you should. If you got a chance to do it and you're still alive, do it. There's a possibility. Howard doesn't know this yet. There's a possibility that our mutual friend uh, Punch and I may have to fly down to Peru very quickly. Here. Uh-huh. For poor quas, they say. Poor qua. Have you heard of Grupo Americana? No. Uh, that is, shall we say, the more violent drug dealing international aspect of the Serbian mafia. There is a gentleman uh, recently arrested and sentenced to 30 years in uh, jail in Peru, despite the fact is it didn't have a defense attorney <laughs> show up oh, for the shucks. case. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for billions of dollars of drug transports, and among his aliases. Uh, this is his old favorite, which is... Earl Bear. No, Peter Sedemirovic. Oh. Uh, he always considered our pal Punch Paul Sedemirovic as his brother's. Uh. Uh, the brother he never had. And he still uses as one of his aliases. Oh, man. Uh, there's no one, no one going down there that uh, is close to him, knows him. And I could have this, the second greatest story of the decade. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. So uh, uh, we may go down there. Let's circle back to Rebecca's book, bro. Yes, the name of the, the book? book. The name of the book is My Hometown is a Rotten Place to Get Murdered. <laughs> <laughs> the, the name of the book is A Murder in My Hometown. Mm-hmm. And it's by, uh, I know you've also published by with Wild Blue Press. Yes, fine folks. Out of Denver. And I was really impressed with, with the work they did and working with them. And um, it's uh, both an e-book and a, a trade paperback and uh, will be an audio book soon. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and places like that. All the places. All the places you'd expect it. And you know, yeah. there's a thing called Authograph where you could actually autograph your Kindle books. Well, there you go. Oh, yes, I've heard about that. I yes. Oh, and by the way, this program is available on all your podcast platforms, including iTunes. So if you go to iTunes and type in True Crime Uncensored you get on OutlawRadioLive.com, you'll get a whole bunch of them you can listen to. Hey, Rebecca, thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you, guys. It was hey. fun. Thank you. We will do this again. We will. Yeah, we will. Okay. Well, here's what I was wondering, bro. What were you wondering? What's next? Magic Mad Al and the Demons of Decadence, live! Walk right in, all you sinners and saints. Tonight's the night we